unlike certain um, island related shows that shall not be named uh, by <laughs> Milf, Milf Island. Gilligan's <laughs> Island. Oh, that was a great oh, one. oh no no you're talking about the destroyer of franchises the maker of nonsense he of yes. the mystery box. <laughs> and so it begins. Accessing file. Welcome to Gray Sector. I'm Mike. I'm Sarah. I'm Joe. We made it to episode three, gang. I don't know how that happened. Persistence. Hard work. This is season one. It was hard work. Masochism. Yeah, so this week we've got season one, episode two, Soul Hunter, an episode that I remember mostly because, do you both remember the, the original Star Trek pilot with Captain Pike? Oh, yes. Yeah, and sure. And those, those aliens that had the giant pulsing heads. Mm-hmm. Forehead vein, forehead vein, forehead vein. Yeah, kind of reminds me of the Soul Hunter. The Soul Hunter's like that, and then they wear leather and, and Wookiee pelts. You know what also is similar to another Star Trek thing? That thing that the Soul Hunter wears around his head? The Ferengi head wrap. Yeah, it seems very similar to, to the oh, Ferengi head wrap. the connection. I wonder if the Soul Hunters killed all the Ferengi. <laughs> that was a weird and dark place to jump to. <laughs> Why would they do that? I mean, given what we've learned about them on the show, that doesn't seem... You don't think their souls are special? We will accuse the humans of preparing to ambush us. It will be our word against theirs. Yeah, they're the opposite of special souls. Only the special. (laughs) Only the special ones. So this was broadcast on February 2nd, 94. We tried to look up something that happened in that month and... Nope. Yeah, no. (laughs) We have no historical comparison to make. Directed by Jim Johnston, whoever that is, that is not Richard Compton, who's been our only director so far. So we have a new director. Bravo for not being directed by Richard Compton. We could go into why, you know, his sins later, but. (laughs) This is still written by JMS. So JMS wrote the first three. So our episode starts off in the cargo bay. And Ivanova and Sinclair, they're waiting. They're going to meet the new doctor because I guess we shipped off the old doctor for some reason. We're not going to see him again. Stephen, the new doctor, Stephen Franklin, uh, knows Sinclair. So like he walks in, he's like, hey, commander. And then like he's super formal with Ivanova. I don't know what that's all about. That seems to be her way, isn't it? She's treated Talia that way too. I think by like the 10th or 11th or 12th episode or whatever, she kind of drops the formal bit. But I think for the first like five or 10 episodes, Claudia Christian was like, Ivanova is extremely formal and Russian. I'd like to know what work of Dr. Franklin's she has been following. Is he a celebrity doctor? Does she read medical journals for fun? The understanding that we kind of get, even just from the little bits of this scene, is Dr. Franklin is like an alien expert. But of course, Dr. Kyle was also introduced to us as an alien expert. And Franklin mentions in this scene that Dr. Kyle shipped off to Earth to like take care of the president. Because, you know, when you have an alien expert, you should totally have them go be the primary doctor for the Earth Alliance human. I wasn't going to get too far into it, but, you know, you've given me just the perfect opportunity. There are a lot of similarities that will crop up between Franklin and Dr. Kyle. In fact, One might say that JMS perhaps originally wrote the role for Dr. Kyle, and then the actor couldn't continue in the role, so he had to just sort of swap it. I'm shocked. That never happens. Just bring in Franklin, you know, because the stim addiction, you know, that's hinted at in the pilot. 
the alien expert stuff. So this is one of those trapdoors that we talked about in the pilot. We talked about how JMS basically wrote trapdoors for every character. But in this one, like the trapdoor is basically non-existent. He's like, I'm just going to swap the character. We're going to just give him a new name. (laughs) He's 20 years younger. And like, that's it. That's the only difference. New main character. That's pretty cool. We keep doing that over the next few episodes, I think. I have a lot of questions about how Medbay works and the role of the doctor on Babylon 5 that this episode brings up. And one of them is why do we keep finding alien experts that are humans instead of just getting a Minbari doctor in there? <laughs> Vorlon doctor. I mean, Vorlon, okay, I could see how that might be a challenge, but I'm sure the Narn have a doctor that could come work in Medbay. Why is it just the one human guy? Also, we learned that aliens are emigrating to Earth, which is something really interesting that I'd love to learn about. I'm super curious what that visa process looks like. We're definitely getting hints that the Earth government is is super xenophobic, right? Or at least yeah. at this point, moderately xenophobic. So meet a new main character. He's he he wanders off to Med Bay. We'll see him very soon. Sinclair heads back to CNC. There's something unexpected because that's always how that happens. Is it me or does every time a new ship comes out, there has to be a red shirt type character who says there's a ship coming through and it doesn't match anything we've ever seen before? They hate it when things come through the jump gate. It's hilarious. (laughs) Every time something comes through the jump gate, they're so pissed off. They're like, we just got it clean. That's not on the schedule. No one reads the calendar. This weird ship comes through, which, by the way, kind of, uh, to me, at least, it reminded me of a Minbari Charlin, like the big, huge Minbari fish ship, the giant one. It like comes out of the gates. It's clearly out of control. And the guy, the random red shirt guy says, oh, it's, it's going to hit the station. We break to the credits. Can we talk about geometry for a second? Because the instant we come back from the credits, we see a cut where the ship is flying towards the station. And we realize how massively huge space is and how small the planet is in this sector. And then how small Babylon 5 is in front of the planet. Yet somehow this ship is hitting the station. Like Babylon 5 is like 1% of the total horizon. Maybe that gate is just like pointed at all times. (laughs) Aimed directly at Babylon 5. And you can only come out on like a little cone of trajectories. And you just boom, you know, more likely than not to hit the station. I mean, it's by design. But in the pilot, both Kasha's ship and Sinclair's trucker girlfriend's ship took an hour to decelerate. I remember that. So that implies that this should not be an imminent situation, but they literally have a monitor that's blinking imminent, imminent, imminent. Maybe the definition of imminent is very hourly. Hmm. Did they move the station and the jump gate closer together in those 11 months, the way that like ships will slowly come together in open waters? I mean, it doesn't seem like it, because I, I think the funniest part is when we get back from the credits, there is this angle shot where you see the ship and like the station's fucking really far away, <laughs> like really far away. And it's tiny. And you're like, this could take a while. That fortunately gives Sinclair like time to go change. Yeah, he had to put on his sparkly. Maybe the imminency is based on, oh, it's imminent because you have to go down to the fighter bay, spend 10 minutes suiting up, get your helmet from those two guys who are holding it, and then like, (laughs) you know, get on your way. Imminent. Yeah, so we come back from credits. We see the ridiculous geometry of the ship heading towards the tiny, tiny station that's way the hell off in the distance. And like all of a sudden, Sinclair's in the X-Wing Bay. I guess he got teleported there while we were listening to him describe Babylon 5 in the credits. And he's just running through the hallways being like, all alone in the night. Huff, 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 huff. <laughs> Before credits cut, Sinclair was standing in CNC in his normal uniform. 
after credits cut, he's standing in the X-Wing bay in his fighter pilot outfit because the commander of the entire station is the person we should definitely put in an X-Wing to go capture the ship outside the station. That makes sense. If he doesn't get in an X-Wing, he gets cranky. No one wants that. As the son, apparently, of a number of fighter commanders, he should really be aware that there's this thing in standard sort of military practice called a CAP, a combat air patrol. Maybe some mm. sh- some ships that are already outside doing outside stuff. They could go, oh, hey, let's go respond to that. It'd be much faster. I just realized we have such a thing even on aircraft carriers, don't we? And aircraft carriers oh, yeah. have 5,000 people on them, not 250,000. Yes, basic security precautions – once again, I think this is Garibaldi's line of work, isn't it? So Sinclair's down there and he's in his suit. He hops in the X-Wing and he's he's going out because that's, that's apparently his job now. First, he gets deeply turned on by the idea that this might be a new species. Oh, yes. Michael O'Hare's line reading there is... If this is a new technology, a new race, I want that ship intact. Well, I think it's funny because Ivanova sort of starts the scene by basically removing all tension. She's like... Hey, you know, don't worry about it. Like, if it just gets too close and it's going to hit us, we'll just blow it up. Super easy. And you're right. Sinclair is like, oh, no, the new technology. I must must touch it. I must hold it in my hand. (laughs) Is this alien sexually compatible with me? Who knows? I must find out. (laughs) We know what Sinclair wants the alien for. So, like, there's this whole scene that's like, God, it felt like it was 10 minutes long. It was probably only like a minute. It's very long. There's this whole scene where Sinclair's like outside the state and he's like grappling and he's trying to get to the thing. And it's it's coming closer. And and like, of course, of course, at some point, Ivanova has to say, oh, you've tried two times and we have 10 seconds before it hits the station. He has the special X-Wing that has the claw from the crane game in an arcade. And he has to get this thing in three tries or else he's going to have to put another dollar in. (laughs) Totally. I guess the scene was supposed to have tension. The fact that it started with Ivanova pointing out that they can destroy the ship at any time super easily. And the other thing we notice is as everything gets closer and closer and closer, we start to realize this ship is like super tiny. It might not even be the size of an X-Wing. And my first thought was, if that thing hits the station, will it even breach the hull? I just don't feel any tension here because A, you can destroy it at any second and B, it doesn't even seem like it would do that much damage. Big surprise. He grapples it with three seconds left. He brings it back in and... There's a way to fix it just to be a total armchair quarterback. (laughs) And the way to fix it is to say that Ivanova can't blow up the ship without also blowing up Sinclair. That's only because he's close to it. (laughs) (laughs) It is still only because he makes weird choices because he's sexually attracted to aliens. But it does put the stakes back up. So they get back in and... Sinclair once again does his magic. He's all of a sudden back in his normal uniform again in like five seconds. Like how Superman goes to Clark Kent and back. Did he just put his pilot suit over his uniform or? No, he's buckling up the thing. What confuses me is that he's coming out of what appears to be, I guess, the fighter jock locker room. And he comes right out onto the Zocalo. And Dylan is with him, walking with him. And he's still buttoning up his thing. So, so why is the fighter? Where is the Zocalo? Like. The Zocalo is everywhere. The Zocalo is a state of mind. I think they had like three sets and they just had to change around all the stuff. And I think the Zocalo is like the big set. And then I think like the Fighter Bay and Sinclair's office and CNC and like a bunch of other, I think those are all one set and they just sort of move the furniture around or they change the angle of the camera or whatever to use that one set to be like eight different things. Yeah, I'll have to look into that. Yeah, that, that may well be. 
Sinclair, he comes back, he runs into Delenn. They're, they're like in the Zoglo in two seconds for some reason. And uh, Delenn says, oh, oh, it's an alien. I've met lots of aliens. I should come help you. And then they run into Garibaldi because apparently this is a convention. They walk in and Delenn takes one look at the alien and she grabs Garibaldi's gun and she tries to shoot it. And I, I do love how all the bed technicians all ducked. We almost lost our new doctor right there. <laughs> yeah. Just like, she's just gun him down. Just, Tough first day. Sinclair, when he takes the gun away from Delenn, he says no to her like she's a disobedient puppy, and I hate it. <laughs> it's terrible, yeah. I, I just felt like we were in a 1950s movie where it was like the hysterical woman was freaking out, and he was like, stop being hysterical and hormonal, I need to take your thing away. Delenn, who has always been so capable, is suddenly overcome with the vapors. And also, like, the fact that he physically overwhelmed Delenn at all... Like, don't we, okay, not to, not to get too spoilery here, but in like season four, doesn't, don't, didn't Marcus and Lanier have like a 30 second scene where, where Marcus is like, yeah, you know, humans are strong too. And Lanier just picks him up with one hand. Do not touch me in that fashion. We may sometimes look like you, but we are not you. Never forget that. Point taken. Minbar, you're super strong. I don't know how the hell it is supposedly that Sinclair can just grab the gun and like force her arm and all that kind of stuff. Maybe Sinclair is simply special, you know, maybe for reasons that will remain unstated in the non-spoiler section of the podcast. Maybe he's powered up. His powers are not limited to being able to change outfits fast. Delenn freaks out. And she says, oh, it's a soul hunter. You should put it back into ship and fire it into the sun. And so Shagtot is the... Minbari word for soul hunter. Apparently this was like a big hullabaloo in England because shag tot is shag tot. Oh, screw a child. Mm, yeah, that's a problem. Sort of an inadvertent slight pedophilia reference there. If there's one country on this earth where they don't speak any foreign languages, it's definitely England. So here's another one of my questions about the med lab. Why is there a clear wall just so people can hang out there and hassle the doctor? Oh, it's that's the environmental chamber or yet another one. It seems to change every time we go into MedLab. It has a different name. It's got a different atmosphere. Why the clear wall and the oh. open comms channel so Garibaldi can just give Stephen shit? So you can just critique people. Yeah. <laughs> Hold up a sign, 8.5. That's a harder question to answer, yeah. We go back to Delenn's quarters, and she, I, I do love this, actually. She sort of minbari splains to Sinclair. She says, <laughs> It's just, you do not know these things as I do. <laughs> like, she just totally is like, yeah, see, you're just an idiot. I understand how these things work. Is she wrong, though? Notice how she doesn't explain, though. No, she doesn't explain anything. <laughs> this is why it's a Minbari explained, because she doesn't actually use any of her words to explain why it's different or what he should know. She's just like, you're just an idiot. <laughs> and I do love that they are discussing this in front of her primary light source in the room, which apparently is two lightsabers that are... It's a vase full of lightsabers and sort of a, a nice arrangement. <laughs> So she's like explaining, she's like soul hunters, they're immortal and they can sense death. This resonated for me too, because of this. They are immortal. No one knows who they are or where they came from. No one knows who they were or what they were doing. But their legacy remains. I don't remember the second half of that one in the episode. <laughs> Behind Delenn, there's a very small Stonehenge. A very, very small Stonehenge. 
It's inside the lightsaber container, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Folks may recognize that's from Spinal Tap, which for whatever reason went to lens like, no one knows who that, like, Sarah and my brain went to the exact same scene in Spinal Tap. Claire says something very similar when they're in the Zocalo. He's like, we don't know where it is or where it came from, and I just can't not hear. Yeah, I can't. I just (laughs) can totally hear that scene. And then an 18-inch Stonehenge being being Mm -hmm. lowered from the ceiling. So she's explaining like Minbari religion, and apparently it's totally antithetical to Minbari religion because they believe in reincarnation. And if the soul hunter captures the soul, then the soul doesn't go into the next generation of souls. There's like a soul pool, apparently. And so she just wants got to get the soul hunter off the station as quickly as possible. I think this is our first introduction to like anything about Minbari religion, right? They touched on it a little bit with the whole Zen garden scene in the pilot. What JMS has done is he's taken Buddhism and sort of flipped mm-hmm. it inside out and upside down. So, you know, a great soul in Buddhism would achieve nirvana and sort of meld into the fabric of the universe, whereas a great soul in the, the Mimbari version is actually then reborn. Like the whole point of Buddhism is you become a great soul and then you don't have to re- be reborn because existence is suffering. Mm. Whereas in the Mimbari version, a great soul is reborn. They enrich the lives of the living. So it's sort of the opposite. Sort of raises up the other souls. It really begs the question, what happens to the bad souls? Do they do the opposite? Uh, do Mimbari not have them? Do they get put in timeout and they don't get to be reborn? <laughs> yeah. They get to go to nothingness, off to Nirvana for the bad people. Well, yeah, not too much of a spoiler. We will hear more about Minmari religion at some point in the future on this show. I think souls, though, we really need to keep talking about them uh, throughout this episode and going forward because they're so important to the ongoing story and yet mm. not adequately explained. That's true. Joe's point gets at one of my big problems with this episode, which is I can't decide, are we talking about the soul, the purpose of the dead as being to improve the state of the living? Is that our perspective here? Or are we talking about from the perspective of the individual dead soul, what's the right outcome? And it's Mm. kind of muddled when we're talking about each thing. Also, I hate... Also, this scene, I'm just going to keep saying that I hate things so y'all can be prepared for that. Why is Delenn reduced to just begging Sinclair here? She's got a position of great power. Which we'll find out about later, yeah. She has diplomatic power. She has a closet full of lethal jewelry. Like, just <laughs> do something about it. She has lightsabers as her light source. That's how advanced technologically they are. <laughs> and yet she's just like, please, sir, please. They don't even use them for their normal use. They're like, we'll just light the room with them. And earlier she was willing to just like gun him down. So why did... I also do love that her attempted murder is never... There's no legal consequences for that at all. <laughs> well, it's not growing coffee, so it's not really covered. <laughs> I know she's got diplomatic immunity, but you, you can apparently just grab the gun from the security guy and try to kill the doctor, or try to kill the soul hunter and maybe hit the doctor, and that's not a problem legally. I must read the rule book again. We also learned that the soul hunters are snobs and classist. They are very classy, with a K. Then there's this scene we get that cuts back and forth. We've got this close-up on the soul hunter's face, basically, or even just his eye. And then it's cutting back and forth between like some place down below where there's some gambling happening. And we're hearing the dialogue from the gambling, but we're sometimes seeing the soul hunter. And at some point, we find out that the gambler is like hustling people, and then he's running through hallways. At that point, he gets stabbed. The soul hunter's eye opens. The gambler who got stabbed is being brought in to med lab and, you know, Steven's working on him. And can we talk about that weird light thing? 
like there's this weird light thing that they have above the chest when they bring people in that like i guess gives them shocks or something it's like no contact paddles i guess it's really weird so steven's working on this guy and and the soul hunter is now in the background he's standing up and he's asking dr franklin if he can feel it when he spoke uh it really uh it really hit me here was one of his first things react only for the greater good the Minbari don't seem to think so. Minbari, pale, bloodless, look in their eyes and see nothing but mirrors, infinities of reflection. So remember last week, Sarah, I was saying that the voice like really, really, I was like, God, I know that voice. And you're like, it's Ira Graves from that Star Trek episode. I'm not proud that I knew that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you totally know that. We probably should have a segment on the show at some point about like that amazing actor from the 80s or 90s. Uh, you know, there's a particular Star Trek podcast that we love and they were describing, you know, the Ira Graves episode. And then they noted what other things this guy has been in. And that's when it hit me what it was. This is the Gulag Rurapente. There is no stockade, no guard tower, no electronic frontier. That's him. So that's the actor. I don't even know his name. You know, this guy comes back to a later episode. Oh, does he really? Yeah. Mike, you don't watch sports. Yeah. I, I. What do you mean? I watch the sports ball. I totally know what season football is in. Yes, the sports balls. I live with someone who watches a lot of sports balls. And this scene, this guy has apparently appointed himself the commentator of this gentleman's death. <laughs> He's like, I'm just going to keep oh, talking. Yeah. That's true. Like a good sports commentator does. I'm like, okay, here it comes. Here it comes. He's coming down the midline. Here's the blue flash of pain. Dr. Franklin's going for the mycetoxin. Had a poor record last season in the med lab, but we're going to try it again. <laughs> oh, he's gone. He's gone. He's gone. Like, that's really the vibe. By the way, I feel bad, but d doesn't Dr. Franklin pretty much kill everyone who comes in? He is injecting him with a toxin, which seems like a poor choice. I'm not a doctor, but... I don't know why you would do that when someone is stabbed. <laughs> All right. So his name is William Morgan Shepard. Yeah, he's been in everything, including, I think, probably his most uh, famous work, Mysterious Island, 2010 adaptation of the Jules Verne novel, which uh, is so unwatchable that I watched three and a half minutes of it and decided, oh, my God. I'm never getting those three and a half minutes back. <laughs> We're very sorry about your three and a half minutes, Joe. He plays war leader Justin. Oh. The long twilight struggle. Oh, Justin. Totally. You recognize his voice? Oh my God. Why didn't I recognize his voice then? This guy has such a distinct voice. That's. I think that's why he's in like everything. The guy dies in med lab. And then Sinclair at some point comes in, you know, explains because maybe if the audience can't figure it out. He explains to the soul hunter that the soul hunter seemed to be sensing that guy dying from far away. The soul hunter explains that they're they're supposed to save the special ones. This is where we get into the classism and that the Minbari are crazy for not letting them do their work. And then like there's this point where Sinclair just turns and he, I can't remember exactly, but it almost feels like one of those scenes where both of the characters are staring at the camera in a soap opera. Uh, Sinclair turns to Franklin. He's like, so can the soul hunter breathe our atmosphere? And at that point, I knew exactly what the next like four things that were going to happen, right? But and Franklin, of course, is like, well, I mean, it seems like his lungs can process our atmosphere, but I don't know. And Sinclair's like, well, that's a terrible security risk. And then he says this, which is what I would say during any terrible security risk. And you'll need a guard. I'll have somebody from security here within the hour. They have a very fast response time. It takes at least an hour for anything bad to happen. <laughs> I'm like, does. 
Garibaldi's, do they do anything? <laughs> I have a theory about this. Yeah. My theory is that security doesn't know how to use the elevators because this also explains <laughs> some things that happen later in the episode. So they have to like climb a ladder to get there and it takes a while. It's a five mile long station. I'd like to put forward for this scene also a hypothesis and I'm calling mm. it the Franklin impossibility theorem. Mm. The theorem states that the probability of something happening is inversely related to Dr. Franklin's opinion on the matter. <laughs> merely proposing this as a rule going forward. I don't know if it's true, but he does declare very soundly that what the soul hunter is talking about is impossible. And yet it happens. So running tally, impossible stuff one, Franklin zero. Let's see what happens. So, okay. Can we take a pause here and digress on fruit? Yes. Let us discuss fruit. So what the fuck was that? <laughs> If we go any further, we may not be able to escape before the, uh, we get all fucked up. So this is what this is about? So this is what that is about? What is it? Let us discuss fruit. Did you see the fruit? I did. I did. It's big. There's this scene. Where Garibaldi, Sinclair, and Ivanova are sitting in the bar. Everyone around them is like sitting there drinking big, fruity umbrella cocktails. And all of them are drinking what appears to be coffee, because it's totally what you drink in a bar. They're talking in front of a giant fucking poster backlit <laughs> of fruit. It's like massive. The poster goes off the left side of the screen. It goes off the top of the screen. It takes up the whole upper left-hand corner of the screen, basically behind them. And there's a person sitting in front of the fruit, and that person looks fairly small. Like, I think this thing is at least six feet tall. And we should be clear, we're not discussing a tasteful, still-life oil painting of fruit. This is a photograph. From what I can tell, it appears to be one of those metal posters, you know, the, the where they print on the metal, and it's very shiny, and it looks sort of realistic. And this poster is just, like, glowing. Oh, it's definitely backlit, yeah. It's like a light wall. And, of course, Ivana was saying something about the aliens all running off the station because of the Soul Hunter, but I was just totally... Totally mesmerized. I didn't even remember what the scene was about. I was like, what is with the fruit? Is it because they can't get fruit on the station? Or is there like a nutritional education program in that they require bars to have? I don't get it. My theory, simply from a set design perspective, is that this is one of those giant decals that they put on the produce section of your grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> I think they've just borrowed one of those. It, it does look like that. It looks like it's from Safeway. Yeah. I'm unclear on whether or not this is a bar or this is some sort of commissary because all the people in it appear to be Earth Force folks. They are all drinking coffee, so maybe it's also an underground coffee speakeasy. The reason I thought it was a bar is I, I think, and I should go back and rewatch it. I was so mesmerized by the fruit. I think you could see the bar that Talia and Ivanova met in in the last episode. Oh, okay. So it's in the casino? It's in the Zocalo, as everything in Babylon 5 is. I'd like to point out that the Babylon 5 cookbook contains quite a number of fruity drinks. And mm. so maybe the problem here is that there's too much fruit on Babylon 5, right? <laughs> Okay. Earth keeps shipping them fruit. and they, oh, Man, we've got to get people to eat fruit. And aliens aren't that into fruit. So they just put these big posters of, mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. is fruit. You can have it in your drinks, you know? And aliens are like, <laughs> oh, fruit. It is very colorful. It contradicts the gathering coffee issue though, right? Because they're like, we can't get coffee. And I'm like, well, that's weird because coffee is like – fairly small and fairly light as far as like the amount of coffee you would need for a month. I maintain they just didn't want to give Takashima coffee. 
because it made her cranky. <laughs> yeah, it's prohibited specifically for her. Also, in Midnight in the Firing Line, Garibaldi has half a squash. And that's a fruit, so I'm very perplexed at this point. I don't know what the food rules are, because they're sort of like, hey, we're on a station and this isn't Star Trek, but we don't quite know how to represent that, so maybe that's where the poster came from. There's also a baby mobile on the ceiling of this room that's made out of ping pong paddles. I don't have an explanation for that either. I will admit to being completely distracted by Garibaldi's shirt. It's like a normal shirt, but he's he's wearing it tucked in and it's puffy. It looks like a Renaissance fair shirt. It looks like he's about to walk into a Shakespearean scene. They're all unbuttoned too in this episode. In the last couple episodes, they had all their jackets were all zipped up and now we've decided that we're going to unbutton a little bit. They're kicking back, yeah. I guess if you go to the bar to drink coffee and eat illicit fruit, you should probably let loose. End of fruit digression. I just don't know. If the listener wants to uh, see the fruit, go to 1015 on the episode. So then there's this scene where Delenn just like walks right past Garibaldi's crack security force into bed lab. His one guy. <laughs> His one guard. So if he's guarding either the soul hunter, like preventing the soul hunter from getting out or preventing someone from killing the soul hunter, you would think the one instruction they would give him is don't let Delenn in because the last time she was here, she tried to kill him. <laughs> You'd think that'd be the one thing they would tell the guard. And she just walks right past. She, she walks right past. She's sitting here talking to the soul hunter. They have this conversation back and forth, this debate about Minbari religion. Near the end, he recognizes her and he says this. I remember. They called you Satai Dilen of the Great Council. Curious. Curious. What is one of the great leaders of the Membari doing here playing ambassador? She, of course, storms out in the middle of that. Even the soul hunter thinks that ambassador is a bullshit job. This <laughs> appears to be a universal opinion. And she storms out past that same guard who is still just like he's even he's kind of swaying a little bit as he's standing by this door. He's grooving. He's having a great time. He's like, Mr. Garibaldi told me to stand by this door and I'm standing by this door. Do you think he probably has his earbuds and he's just listening to like Punk Save America? He, he had no reaction to this at all. He was uh, he... <laughs> This argument is happening 10 feet from <laughs> <laughs> guys talking about satires and great ca- whatever. I'm listening to my tunes. He's got Fleetwood Mac going. Delenn walks out and then we hear glass break in MedLab. And it's this long scene where like the guard goes, he puts on the mask and he goes into the thing with the soul hunter who's supposedly on the floor and he inches closer and he inches. What was he going to do? <laughs> what was he going to do? <laughs> oh gosh, the guy's collapsed. I'll, I'll point my gun at him. Well, he does do something. He calls for a doctor because there are no doctors <laughs> in the med lab. There's no doctors. There's no nurse. Like there's no one medical around. <laughs> and of course, you know the soul hunter hits the guy and he takes the gun and because Garibaldi security is is great. Garibaldi security cards are the worst ever. <laughs> So then we have the Soul Hunter wandering around down below. With- well, before we get to that, there's a scene in CNC where Sinclair and Garibaldi and Ivanova are discussing the inevitable escape of the Soul Hunter. <laughs> and Sinclair says that the Soul Hunters are drawn to the deaths of important people. And there's this moment where Susan starts to say, so all we have to do is, and there's a pause, and I'm thinking, guard all the important people. That yes. would be a logical thing to do. <laughs> and instead she says, figure out who's about to die. <laughs> 
okay. We don't have 8,000 ambassadors on the station, right? We have four primary ambassadors. And then we have Sinclair, who apparently plays an ambassador as his night gig. And then we have 25 or 30 of the League of Non-Aligned World. However many plastic masks they have sitting around. (laughs) On that day. All they need to do is piece together the magical mathematical information that they should probably guard four people. That's two guards more than Garibaldi has, <laughs> as we learn later. So, And they'd have to go on an elevator, so it's just right out. <laughs> I have no idea why. Probably because there were no medical people in mid-lab when he broke out, but apparently it takes them quite a while to figure out that he's broken out. <laughs> Who did he radio then? Did- Garibaldi also says in this scene that security is all over the docking bays. So I guess that's where they all are. They're all in the docking bay, nowhere else. Given what we're going to learn in the next couple scenes, my thought was maybe they should search the Soul Hunter ship. Oh, yeah, they forgot to do that. He said they did that. They did a terrible job. They didn't open a cabinet. No one told them they should open cabinet when conducting a search. The Soul Hunter's like wandering around down below... And like he wanders past these two giant oafish looking ogre type guys. We see we see their species later. I don't know exactly what it is. And he wanders into this smoky room and he meets Nagrath, who is awesome. Nagrath is awesome. Like, okay, so here's what he sounds like. You are Nagrath. Yes, I sell, provide, fix. He's this giant praying mantis type thing i contend that it would have been better to have called him dr mantis but yes (laughs) (laughs) and there's one point where the camera sort of zooms out a little bit it's like clearly this guy in this giant praying mantis suit that looks really pretty fake this is like power rangers villain level rubber suit i adore it I love, though, because Nagrath comes back later. Like, we see him in two or three or four episodes because they're like, we spent at least $100 on this suit. We need to get some mileage out of it. So the Soul Hunter's like, I need to find out about the station. I need to find out all the hidden places. I'm willing to, you know, pay or whatever it is. Which, did Garibaldi's security team do anything? Because they gave him back his wallet, apparently. Maybe he had a spare wallet in the ship, you know? In the cabinet. In the cabinet with the other souls. You know, he took some souls out of there too. Or at least little orbs, which I assume are souls. So let's get this clear. So Garibaldi's team apparently searched his ship. They did not find any of his soul collection. They did not take his wallet. We'll get to the later scene where he has like all of this equipment that he apparently has. Like, I don't... It's really huge, all this equipment. They searched the outside of his ship. They were just like, (laughs) nothing outside. Definitely a ship. It's all good, boss. At that point, we cut away and there's another ship that comes through. Thankfully, because they saw the Soul Hunter ship at the beginning, they actually have the profile on this one. And they're like, oh, it's another one. And a different Soul Hunter comes up on the Babzoom. I guess we can call him Good Soul Hunter. Sinclair's like, hey. And he's like, you know what I am. And he's uh, he's like, I need to dock because someone's going to die. And then Sinclair's like, well, what if I don't let you dock? And he's like, well, then many people are going to die. And then Sinclair's like, okay, you should totally dock. It's like, that checks out. Definitely not a threat. <laughs> like, I'm threatening one person. Now I'm going to threaten many people. Okay, you should definitely just dock. So he docks and Sinclair teleports down Oof. to the docking. Do you think he appears in like a cloud of sprinkles? He appears in the docking bay and like the good soul hunter walks in and he's basically wearing a huge coat, like an overcoat of like Wookiee pelts. Some of this fur looks like it's a foot long. They really had fun with this. I don't know where the hell they got whatever the hell this is. And he says he's here because his his compatriot is going to kill someone. Garibaldi and Sinclair showed up with more security for this guy coming onto the station than they did on a signing to guard the other soul hunter or 
to hunt down the shape-shifting assassin who tried to kill Kosh and get the Vorlons to blow up Babylon 5 in the pilot. Well, Garibaldi said that all his guys were in the docking bay. Like, they're just stuck there and can't figure out how to go anywhere else. So, Oh, you're right. Maybe they, yeah, they're all just there. While they're there, they may as well. Guard. As the Soul Hunter is talking, he just made this comment that I thought was, like, fucking hilarious. He's talking about his compatriot, and he says, Souls were lost. Our order was disgraced. He was always fragile. <laughs> as always, male fragility is the real problem. We're going to send this guy out to collect people's souls. He's emotionally fragile and might go insane at any moment, but that's fine. At some point, we get this scene, Delenn's inner quarters, and the evil soul hunter walks in. He's like, I've come for you, Satai Delenn, and he takes her away. What is the point of having an entire closet full of gravity rings? Would have been really useful. Really handy. I would also like to take a moment to discuss why Babylon 5 has secret passages like it's a motherfucking game of Clue. <laughs> but I hate this scene. I hate everything about this scene. So Delenn had said that she is going to search this guy's ship and take a positive action. She has apparently forgotten about this. <laughs> she, despite having a closet full of lethal mall jewelry, is instantly overpowered off screen. She just apparently, I don't know, maybe faints because girls. And then she has to be tied up in the most exploitative position possible. Did you notice she was tied up by like air conditioning vent work? I thought they were like hair tie scrunchies. It was quite something. <laughs> and then they direct Mira Furlan, who's a great actress. They're like, beg and scream as much as you can while this dude tells you to just relax and it'll all be over soon. Like this whole scene is <laughs> extremely <laughs> gross and rapey. And I don't know if they were trying to make a point with that, but if they did, they fucked it up. It's just gross. It is. It's pretty fucking creepy, to say the least. Like, honestly, when they showed her bare feet, I literally paused the episode and opened IMDb because I was like, is Joss Whedon involved in this somehow? Oh, no. Oh, he who shall not be named. Actually, that's that's not the one who shall not be named. But yes, yeah, you, you were right, though. I, I, I hate it. I hate it all. I had a similar feeling about the feet. I'm like... Whoa. So he takes her to like this random location down below somewhere, and he has all of this equipment. There's this giant soul gun that's like the size of a refrigerator, and there's this bed that he has her on and all of this restraining stuff. And he's got like this whole like lab with all these vials and shit that he's draining her blood. And like, what the fuck did Garibaldi's team check for on his ship? Because they missed all of this stuff. Didn't seem important, boss. He gives this evil monologue about how he has to atone for his loss of not getting the Minbari leader Dukat. And so he has to take Delenn, one of the great council. And it's cutting back and forth between that and Garibaldi and Sinclair and a couple of red shirts. They're suiting up, searching around. They go to Delenn's quarters because they magically find out she's gone. What a surprise. Also, Londo and Jakar are clearly not great souls. So I'm just saying. <laughs> didn't even consider it <laughs> weren't on the list sinclair goes to the good soul hunter he's like he's like you can sense death tell us where delenn is so first off delenn's not dead so i don't know how this is going to work but so good soul hunter they walk over to the map right of babylon 5 which by the way is super not detailed i don't think they had even decided that like green sector and gray sector and brown sector were different sectors because like most of the station is green he says point you know tell us where delenn is and then the soul hunter proceeds to point and he, he says this. The soul hunter is never wrong. Here, you say you can sense death. You're drawn toward death. Here, show me. The moment comes. It moves. Calls, sings low. Quickly, here, here. He's pointing at like the right half of the station. 
he doesn't point to like a very specific part. You look at his finger and he's like, it's over here. And he's pointing to like the entire right half of the station. So they all run off. The camera does this close up on Good Soul Hunter. And he has this smile on his face like, oh, good. I have totally led them off the path. Like he just looks like he's scheming, which I find really weird because he totally told them that Delenn is actually in the right half of the station and they end up finding her, right? It was weird. Maybe he's just hated by everyone so much because he's a soul hunter. So he automatically does a fair amount of scheming just in case, like precautionary scheming, preemptive scheming. He's like, ah, I've come up with a good scheme in case they're going to betray me. They also just left him in that hallway. No guard or anything. You can't come with us. You can't sit with us. You know, they wander off. I guess they just leave the good soul hunter there. And I love this scene. Sinclair is like in this dark room and he reaches up on the wall. I don't know why you put car battery sized flashlight up on a hook on the wall, like chest height. Like this thing is huge. It literally is like almost as big as a car battery. I guess Babylon 5 flashlight technology is nowhere near as good as TNG because TNG, like they had these little tiny flashlights and they were super bright and he's wandering around down below, even though like, except for that one room where he grabbed the flashlight, every other room he's in is perfectly fine. The lighting is, there's nothing wrong with it. (laughs) Those flashlights are from the X-Files. They borrowed them from the other set, I think. Can you imagine the X-Files Babylon 5 crossover? That would be so good. Oh, that'd be awesome. I want to see Scully and Ivanova. Anyway. There's, again, cutting back and forth, and the evil soul hunter is now, he's turned on his soul gun, and his soul gun is pointed at Delenn, and we're starting to see her face appear in the snow globe, which I guess means he's starting to get her soul, and he starts talking, because, like, apparently now he's looking into her soul, and he says this really interesting thing. You would plan such a thing? You would do such a thing? So that was weird. Uh, We can talk about this in the spoiler section, but it's clear JMS is planning ahead. It's interesting. So they they get into a firefight. He's got his gun. He stole from the security guy. Sinclair has got his giant flashlight and apparently a gun. They fight! Fist fight! Fight, fight, fight! He shoots the soul hunter, which... The soul hunter gets hit in the shoulder or whatever, the place that everyone needs to get shot in. And then they do a fist fight. And at some point, all of his snow globes come out. I guess these are his souls. I think Sinclair releases them. And at that point, the soul gun goes a little crazy. So like he's getting a little overwhelmed by his snow globe collection. Sinclair turns the gun away from Delenn and points it at the soul hunter. And then all of a sudden, his soul is sucked into the snow globe. Kind of makes me wonder why we needed a 15 minute monologue. He could have just I guess, pressed a button and it would have just worked. I'd like to talk, you know, here a little bit about the mechanics of capturing souls. Earlier, he mentioned that he was fighting his way to Dukat, making a wall of bodies of the Mimbari. And I assume carrying that giant ass soul (laughs) gun along the way. (laughs) Yeah. How does that work? Does he have to set up that whole massive apparatus? Was he planning on doing that with the Mimbari there? Oh, it just... Dukat, just relax. I'm just going to set up this tripod. If the capturing requires this, is there any surprise that he has failed in the past? Because I guess you're not supposed to kill someone to do it. You're supposed to just capture it at their moment of death. Or possibly a 15-minute window surrounding the moment of death while you monologue. So I guess you have that 15-minute buffer. But then you like you capture their but at the exact right moment as they're dying. Well, what's the soul gun for then? Does it just transfer the soul? Because this one seemed to suck the soul, right? I mean, he was alive and then Sinclair 
killed him. And then he became a snow globe. It doesn't quite hold together. Yeah, anyway. And I guess the implication with the souls hovering reproachfully at him is that these souls did not want to be captured. Although it's not all the souls, there's some left in the weird bag. So I'm, I'm wondering if those are the ones that were okay with it. So later on, Sinclair's in med lab and Franklin is explaining that Delenn, he bled her for, well, at least 15 minutes during that monologue. She has an amazingly strong constitution, uh, even though you could wrestle the gun away from her with one hand. Constitution and strength are different stats, Mike. Come on. You know this. I also would like to know about her dex and wisdom stats, but we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, Franklin mentions, no wonder they held up so well during the war. They just kept going no matter how much injury or loss of blood or whatever. And I was just like, wait a minute. I'm wondering what the Earth government is telling people about the Earth-Minbari War, because from my recollection, from, you know, and I'm sure we'll eventually get to it, the movie that basically explains the entire Earth Minbari War, with the exception of a single Minbari ship that was lost, I don't think any Minbari ever during the entire war was even injured. Ducat. Well, Ducat was killed at the beginning. That's what tipped it off, right? It seems clear that like humans don't know the whole history of the war. I thought it was funny, though, Sinclair's look in this scene, as Franklin was saying that, because Sinclair was sort of like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. Whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sinclair clearly knows a little bit about what happened because he was at the Battle of the Line. And then Delenn wakes up and she mutters some stuff to Sinclair, including like, we were right about you. And then she falls back asleep. Just to make me that little extra bit angry, she gets to wake up and go, my hero, and then swoon again. It's, uh, yeah. One of the last scenes right after that, Sinclair walks into his quarters. He's trying to parse out what just happened. He does a word search on his computer. Computer. Keyword search. Minbari language. Designated keyword. Satai. One reference. Satai. Honorific. Title applied to ruling body known as Grey Council. So I guess the Grey Council is not as much of a secret as it was implied to be in the pilot. Yeah, because Delenn would like never mention the Grey Council again. But it's in the dictionary? <laughs> <laughs> I also enjoy that even Sinclair, who is the one person who believes the most passionately in the mission of Babylon 5, is like, why the fuck would anyone be here if they have a real job? Yeah, I do like that reference where he's like, it's like assigning the vice president. I can't tell whether he thinks the vice president doesn't have a job or whether he thinks... I think he's implying that she's too important. Like the vice president, obviously. Okay. Uh, well, hmm. So Sinclair's walking the good soul hunter out. He tells the good soul hunter to never come back and... The good soul hunter says, cool, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, where's my brother's collection? And Sinclair's like, there are mysteries in life. This is just going to be one of them. You can fuck off now. And in our final scene, Delenn is in her quarters and she's got all of the snow globes and she's, she's like reaching up one snow globe at a time and breaking them open and caressing the souls as they come out of the snow globe. And then it fades to black. And I just don't know what to think of that scene. Like, is she releasing them and they're happy? Or is she just killing all of the souls one by one? Do we think she can hear them? Because she puts them up to her ear. Presumably if she's asking the soul, like, do you want me to release you? Like, maybe she should just say that so that we know she's actually getting consent from the soul before it does whatever it's going to do. I hope they all speak Mimbari. <laughs> or English. Yes, true. I also like that Sinclair has apparently refused to let Franklin look at any of this. Like Franklin is interested. He, as Joe said, is very confident that this is not possible. And here's all this technology that does it. And Sinclair's just like, fuck off science. You don't get to look at anything. <laughs> what it really comes down to is what are souls in this, in this universe? A miserable little pile of secrets. Oh, no, wait, that's man. Sorry. 
<laughs> JMS is very fond of the any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Arthur C. Clarke, quote, big science fiction writer. So there's a possibility that these souls are merely like a collection of nano neurons imprinted with a soul energy copy. Sphere is just a containment device. But alternately, they could be actual souls. However, that would work. Some kind of feature of intelligent life that we aren't aware of. That raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? I mean, do animals have souls? The thing that I liked about this episode, you know, a lot of it was pretty canned. We don't see soul hunters again. So we're not coming back to this theme again. Unlike our first episode, Midnight on the Fire Line, which honestly felt like a TNG episode. It started in one place, it ended in a slightly different place, but like there was no questions introduced. There was no mystery. There was no additional character plot development that we're going to carry on into any future episode. And this episode is not like that. We all of a sudden learn that apparently Delenn is a big mucky muck, which we sort of thought was the case given the scenes and the dialogue and the reaction with Jakar and stuff where she's like, don't mention the Grey Council. I don't want to hear about it. Sort of like, hmm, she either hates the Grey Council or she's on the Grey Council, one or the other, right? With this one, it does bring up some interesting stuff. Like Delenn has apparently got a secret here. She's That's interesting. It sort of brings up other questions too, which... Because it's, for the most part, good writing, B5 is, I would say the series is good writing. The questions that it brings up get answered later on, unlike certain um, island-related shows that shall not be named uh, by- <laughs> Milf, Milf Island? Who, Gilligan's <laughs> Island? Oh, that was a- oh, 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 no, no. You're talking about the destroyer of franchises, the maker of nonsense, he of yes. the mystery box. <laughs> The thing that drove me nuts about that show, which we won't talk about too much, but I hated that show because it it clearly like brought up all these questions like, there's this guy who got a lottery ticket and all the numbers, like all this shit. And I'm like, they're never going to fucking answer any of these questions. People who loved that show were like, oh, they're weaving it all together. They know all the answers in advance. And I'm like, no, they don't. You know, this also subtweet Battlestar Galactica in this category. <laughs> yeah. Bad writing brings up questions and then doesn't answer them. Bad writing, no biscuit. Exactly. You know, but this one brought up some stuff like she apparently has a plan that the Soul Hunter mentions that we don't know about yet. I have no idea why Sinclair was her hero and they were right about him. I'd like to go back to what Joe was saying, though, about our souls real. I feel like that's what the episode is trying to get us to ask. Are souls real or is this some kind of artificial substitute for that? But I don't think that's actually what matters. The episode is trying to say if souls are real, then it's okay that these guys are capturing them in soul globes and keeping them forever. And if souls aren't, that's not the conversation. The conversation should be people have a choice about how they want to live and what their experience is. And it matters what these people believe before they die. And it matters what the experience of these snow globes is after. Assuming they're sentient, right? I remember when I first watched this episode and like Delenn is like at the end breaking open the souls and, and my thought as a 14 year old or whatever the hell I was, but wait, she could be killing them. What if the soul hunter's right and them going out of their snow globe form is just death? What is the point of the snow globe form? Like that also matters. Are the soul hunters doing this to enrich the state of the living by preserving this knowledge? Or are they doing this because it's a preferable outcome for the dead people? There's this nice scene that we didn't talk about in CNC where Franklin comes up to talk about disposing the body of the hustler dude. And they shoot the hustler's body off into space, into the sun. And Ivanova recites the space version of Dust to Dust from Genesis. From the Space Bible. Yes, from Space Bible. I went to Space Bible camp, so I'll tell you all about it. They have this little conversation where Franklin is like, it sucks that humans don't live long enough. 
And if we live longer, it would be better because we would learn better and we would know more and the state of humanity would be improved. And Ivanova being Russian is like, no, it wouldn't. <laughs> we should accept our mortal limitations. Yeah. And I feel like that's the conversation that the episode kind of wants to have, but the actual facts of the plot really don't line up with that conversation. The facts of the plot are, would you like to live in a snow globe owned by a crazy man? And I'm like, no, I don't actually think I'd enjoy that. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> there is that alternate view, though, that you have to take of these events. Essentially, Sinclair turned over a bunch of really precious knowledge about aliens, specific knowledge about very important people to a religious fanatic who destroyed it. And she just destroyed it all, opened the globes, whispered up through the wind chimes, and that was it. If the the, the souls were being used in some way, that would also change this calculation, mm-hmm. right? If we knew what these people wanted and if we knew what was going to be done with them, but none of that's really addressed. It's muddled. Yeah, I agree. If they're able to talk to him, as the soul mm-hmm. hunter said, then maybe Sinclair should have at least had a chat before turning them over to the psycho-religious lady. And this is why I'm so upset with the, I mean, I'm upset with the gross scene because it's gross, but I'm also upset with it because, yeah, consent is what this whole thing should have been about. This whole thing should be about people's choice about how they want to die and what they want their legacy to be. Yeah, we kind of missed that point. Even though they had a whole scene in there that's about consent is important and you are violating it right now and that's gross. It's a weird episode. It definitely brought up some plot stuff that comes up later. We'll get to the spoiler section here in a sec. Overall, mostly a canned episode. I do feel, admittedly, you know, it's a small sample size, but the direction overall, the direction of the actors themselves is better. Sinclair seems a little bit more... He's a little less wooden. Plotting is tighter. He keeps it to a single story. None of this extraneous B-plot stuff. JMS is skirting the line between fantasy and science fiction, maybe, because he's not really explaining what souls are. There's a great classic horror movie shot that I noticed and appreciated that speaks well of the direction. In MedLab, when Dr. Franklin is walking around and he's got his back to the window and the soul hunter is standing there looming, that's a classic and I enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. Do we disclose to the listener that you almost have a degree in horror films, Sarah? I do not almost have a degree in horror films. (laughs) I've watched a lot of horror films and written college papers about them, though, yes. I was going to say, you've taken classes on horror films, which even even I have not done, and I took some doozies. (laughs) Let's go over to the spoiler sections. I would never tell you anything that was not in your best interest. So you would plan such a thing? So like clearly JMS had the whole Dylan transformation thing figured out. I think that's what's being referred to when he says you would plan such a thing, you would do such a thing, is the fact that Dylan's going to turn into a human. Yeah, I think so. And I think they were making gestures in the direction of a Sinclair Dylan romance before they had to switch that out. But I definitely get that vibe in this episode. You mean Sinclair wasn't originally slated to go out at the end of the first season? No, no. Michael O'Hare got ill. He had a lot of mental health issues and he had to step away. kind of feel bad about making fun of him so much. I know. Ah, I'm over it. (laughs) That didn't last long. You both already knew I'm a terrible human being and you decided to hang out with me anyway. So what does that say about you? (laughs) Excuse me, I have to go think about my life choices now. You guys can just carry on. 
Interesting thing, I, I read in the, the Babylon 5 wiki online, and this apparently isn't an RPG book. The Soul Hunters are the creation of one of the first ones, the Mind Riders. <laughs> Is the Babylon 5 RPG book canon? <laughs> <laughs> Might be canon, I'm not sure. Evil Soul Hunter apparently is at least 4,000 years old because they're immortal. And they are a creation of the Mind Riders because they the Mind Riders wanted to capture the information from the younger generation of Lorien's race. So remember how Lorien says like, I'm the, he was immortal and like a bunch of people were immortal after him, but then eventually like the descendants started dying um, because the universe decided that for life to be interesting, it had to be of a finite length. And so apparently the soul hunters were created by the mind writers to like capture the souls of those younger ones so that they could use the knowledge or something. Can you consider just asking them to write it down? (laughs) There's other options. You don't have to go all the way to snow globe. That brings up a question. If it was an attempt to capture the knowledge of younger generations, wouldn't that mean that they are copies? They're just copies? I'm super skeptical you can just keep a soul in a snow globe. A real soul or whatever that is. Yeah, an actual soul. Like Maybe that machine was just imprinting the information from the brain. And then the other thing is, is if Delenn is on the station to watch Sinclair because she knows secretly he becomes Valen – like, what did they do about watching Sinclair for the eight or nine years between when they found him on the line and when they when he became commander of the station? It took eight or nine years for the paperwork to get cleared to pay for their network of spies. He mentions getting exiled to some faraway command post. It's, yeah. What was hmm. it, the first episode? It's Infection because it's after he gave his first interview. It's been so long since I've watched Infection. I hate that episode so much. I might hate this one more. Infection is just incoherent. This one offends me. <laughs> Got some great Franklin moments in there, though. We'll, we'll flag those for Joe. By great, you mean terrible, right? I mean notable. Notable. <laughs> there we go. There's a word that can mean a lot of things. So is there any other spoilers we want to talk about before we... I don't remember how Ducat managed to get killed. So what happened was the Minbari were flying around. Ducat's ship was flying around. So the Great Council and Ducat. Going on a joyride. They're going to White Castle. Yeah, they run into this human ship and they're like, oh, hey, we ran into this new race that I, we think are called humans because of, I think, the Centauri or something they're like the Centauri have run into them. They're called humans. We're talking to them and Ducat's like, wait, how are we doing that? And they're like, oh, you know, our standard procedure of like approaching them menacingly with our gun ports open, because that's totally how you always talk to someone new. Mm-hmm. And the human captain freaked out because the gun ports were open and just opened fire and hit the part of the ship that Ducat was apparently on. Mortally injured. He he survives for a little while. It was like an I-beam situation. And Delenn like ran up to him as he was under an I-beam. And he whispered some stuff to her and then died. There's a part of that scene. I can't remember whether it's the movie that goes over this or whatever. But there's where the Minbari go, wait, soul hunters are here. And they there's a whole bunch of soul hunter ships just waiting for this to happen, apparently. So I guess not only can soul hunters sense death, but they can see the future. They can sense diplomatic problems. It's It's totally weird. Joe, you're right. JMS is like playing footsie with fantasy there a little bit. I mean, if they're doing it for the greater good, maybe they should consider things that would be helpful. The greater good. <laughs> doing things that would be good. But in general, when somebody tells you they have to do something to you in order to save your soul, that never is going to work out well for you, just as a rule. Somebody says that run. Hmm. Yeah. What are our overall thoughts on this episode? So far, it's pretty good compared to other episodes that we've watched. <laughs> <laughs> We're grading on a curve. Hey folks, that's it for our discussion of Season 1, Episode 3, Soul Hunter. 
As promised and or threatened, next time we will be discussing Season 1, Episode 4, Infection, which is going to be a wild ride. Our theme music is composed by Absent Realities, with additional music this episode provided by Megabit Melodies, all licensed under Creative Commons 3.0, links in the show notes. Catch you next time. Due to budget cutbacks, portions of Grey Sector remain unfinished. End file. Go away! Go away! I need a sub-punk rock today!